We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At Hearing Architecture, we spend a lot of time talking to architects in Australia because there's so much work happening here at a very high level. You can see this by visiting the Australian Institute of Architects awards page at architecture.com.au backslash awards and having a look at the chapter winners and shortlisted entrants. But even when you live in a country where you're surrounded by great architecture, there can still be a limit to what you can learn at home. Over the next four episodes, we're going to be speaking with some built environment professionals about how traveling, working and researching overseas has affected the work they're doing in Australia. Our guest in this episode was the recipient of both the National and South Australian 2021 Emerging Architect Prize, Dino Vrinios. Dino is an architect and director of DAS Studio based in South Australia, which was founded by his wife and business partner, Sarah Horseman, in 2018. In this interview, Dino shares his experience travelling overseas via the Jack Hobbs McConnell Travel Fellowship, how Dino's trip informed his decision to start the modular construction consultancy MDLR, and how travelling was a clear milestone in Dino's career that helped clarify what he wanted in practice. I'll now hand over to Renata Gabara, who is an Imagine representative and employee of Dino's based in South Australia. Let's jump in. Hey, Dino, thanks for joining us to discuss how traveling, working and researching overseas has affected the work being done by architects in Australia. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Can we start by talking a little bit about the Jack Hobbs McGonagall Traveling Fellowship? What made you apply for it and why did you choose to study modular construction? I'll go back in time because I think it's important to understand who Jack Hobbs McConnell was because it's an important part of the story and why this fellowship was left behind. So Jack Hobbs McConnell was actually very much part of the, the genesis of Hassel as we know it today uh, here in South Australia. He came over from New South Wales and was part of that. And famously, um, he, he was part of a project where he was to design the Heinz canning factory in Melbourne, of all places. And as a young architect, he knew nothing about canned food processing. He undertook whatever research he could. He prepared 10 pages of questions and presented them to Heinz in Melbourne Heinz said, we've got no idea. So they sent the questions to the United States. The United States came back and said, we've got no idea. Send your architect around the world to learn whatever he wants to learn. So funnily enough, when Jack Holmes McConnell, who made it to the ripe old age of 95 or 96 or something like that, he, he left behind a bequest, which is just a truly remarkable thing for him to do in South Australia. So he left behind a bequest or a fund, uh, which provides access to architects who are either graduates from University of South Australia or Adelaide University to undertake a similar kind of research that he did in a subject matter that's really important to them, but in a field or an area of expertise that isn't readily or easily accessible in South Australia. So each recipient, I think there's been 10 or 10 or 11 maybe, I think so far, since the bequest came into effect from 2007, received $15,000 contribution towards travel. So that gives you an idea about how much money he left behind. Architects used to make a lot more money, I think, is, is the lesson <laughs> there in that. But that's a significant thing that, you know, I think they have 10 recipients. So $150,000 so far has mm -hmm. been left behind for other emerging um, South Australian architects to go and research things overseas. So that's I think impressive. That's, that's the first thing that's pretty incredible about that. And in terms of the question specifically about why modular construction, well, I actually applied for it before I was successful, a year later. I had a particular interest in um, spatial analytics, which is sort of founded out of the um, UCL School um, of Architecture in, in London around sort of mapping people movement. And it was very primitive back then in terms of drawing a straight line between points. It's far more sophisticated now. I was really, really interested in that. But mm -hmm. I guess the jury at the time didn't think that, that was necessarily going to be of great value not just to myself but more so for the state because that was a key criteria of assessing this I'm now the chair of that um, assessment panel uh, for the subsequent years after I was a recipient so it needs to be something that 
benefits the community as well. You need to be able to come back and communicate what that's all about. Right. So uh, 2014 was when I applied again. And at the time I was working at Grieve Galette, um, as it was then, and I was working for a client on a residential project. His name was um, well John Hill and Andrea Dale, but it was John in particular that I spent most of my time working with on that project. And we're in the middle of construction administration and we're on site and we're having a conversation about what he's up to at the moment. And, of course, John at the time was a, a minister within the South Australian government and he had been for, I think, 12 years at the time. And one of the things that he was responsible for then was managing the exit of Mitsubishi from South Australia in terms of car manufacturing and was gearing up for the same thing to happen with Holden in the coming years. And at the time we were spending a lot of, a lot of our periods of site time together talking about not construction and talking about all the things mm-hmm. that he was doing. And what became apparent is he talked about the significant loss of expertise that would play out if we let manufacturing die in South Australia as a key part of our DNA and who we were as a state. And what he was tasked with is what ultimately became the Tonsley Precinct, um, uh-huh. which is an amazing thing. It's been recognised around the world, Woods Bagot and Oxygen and Tridenti, I think, were all key players in that turning into what it turned into and others have contributed buildings to that like MBH and Thompson Rossi and Hassel. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. But... The key thing that happened with all of that was he talked about sending that manufacturing expertise and capability into other sectors. And, of course, as the story goes, I credit him for being the spark for everything that's happened since with DAS was that he he said all that and when middle of construction, in the middle of winter, on site, it's raining, it's wet, it's windy, there's dirt, there's crap everywhere and that's that moment that I credit to being where this thing happened inside. I said, well, why do we build like we build? Why don't we build like a manufacturer? And so that piqued interest for me in prefabrication and modular construction. And I then went on a deep dive trying to understand what was out there. And through my, you know, online research, as you do, you you find out a lot of things and you, you realize it goes back a lot further than you think. You think it's like a really kind of emerging field, but prefabrication is fundamental in all architecture truth like a truss is prefabricated like it exists it's just about transitioning that thinking on scale to more elements of construction but then also the role for us as architects to facilitate that through smarter documentation and modeling and planning and all that kind of stuff so that was where the interest came from and Mm -hmm. yeah that's the history i've always noticed that about you and that's something that would that impressed me when I first heard about you and started to find more information is that you have this initiative of always thinking about things differently and how to improve them and how to make them better. You see architecture not only as a finished building that needs to respond to clients' briefing. You use your skills to think differently when doing business, when connecting to people, and ultimately when conveying change. You are an architect of things, as you usually say, do you think that this kind of thinking was determinant when you chose what you wanted to research? Yeah, I, I think so. Like as a kid, I was always very curious. And I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that I had supportive parents that created an environment for me to to make things and be creative. So that was kind of hardwired in me, this constant curiosity and pursuit for knowledge and truth. And I was a bit of a you know, smart ass. So <laughs> if I didn't like the answer I got, I would put a counter position forward and I suppose that was somewhat fostered and became a kind of entrepreneurial streak in me but that's kind of the fun part right that we get to create things as architects and I think my, my version of what an architect is and it's different for everyone but my version of what an architect is is being able to create systems for for living for working for learning it's all those sorts of things that I think we have the ability to contribute to and so what we have to be able to do is understand all the forces at play that contribute to what a built form response might be. And it's not always a built response in any shape or form because that's not the whole life of a project either. One of the other things I talk about a lot is rather than talking about design and construct, we should talk about design and operate because it provides us with the means to make smarter decision-making up front because it gives us a longer lens through which we should be assessing what value is. So mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And so I suppose with that in mind, I and our practice and the other business ventures that um, I'm part of, are about looking at whole system changes for things. And so that's kind of 
hand in glove with what we're trying to do with modular construction. So I'm an architect. I participate in the construction industry, but is there a way in which I as an architect through understanding more of what's possible can actually contribute to changing the construction industry for the better? And that's fundamentally, I mean, I don't think I was so clear and explicit about that's what it was going to be, but I think because I had that underlying appetite to learn and question why things were the way they were and an energy to pursue finding better solutions for things, that's kind of why I think I've been able to succeed as an architect um, so far. And it hasn't been easy. It's taken some time. So, I mean, like it's important to understand the timeline of this. This is 2014 yeah, and it's now 2022. So it requires patience as well. Yeah, of course. And I imagine when you went overseas and interstate to do your research that you weren't expecting to learn so much about different things that are not exactly related to what you were researching uh, that actually changed your vision. You weren't expecting to change your vision about so many things when you went to research modular that were actually related to other things in construction or in architecture in general. No, that's a, that's exactly right. And as I said, it's about like it's a systems approach to things. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to explain it. I think maybe part of it is that just makes me who I am, but wanting to have that deep understanding of how things work and I suppose the ability is what I think most architects have is perception of a version of reality that can be constructed within our own mind mm-hmm. and, and charting the steps to get there. I'm applying that to not just making a physical space. I'm like how do you influence a whole system of things? Yeah. So it took time for me to understand that that was actually a different that's not normal, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's atypical. And so once I started to really understand that's what made me unique, I really leaned into the idea of being able to change things for the better through what I could do as an architect, but my version of what an architect is. And how do I participate in more elements of all that decision-making to shape the direction of an endeavour and go from having a pilot idea, developing a prototype, and then turn to a whole program of work so that actually has impact at scale and that's kind of the key thing and we've done that with a lot of our ventures that we start with an idea we deliver a pilot project and then it's now evolving into these much bigger things which is pretty cool and that came from the seeds of yes modular construction but how do we apply what we've learned in a way that's in other areas. better for other people too that's the thing it's like i can assure you that none of these things are commercially viable completely by themselves just yet um it's not about making money or anything like that. Like we have to pay the bills, of course, and we've grown a team and have to support them. But we genuinely believe that as a collective, through having this particular expertise and way of thinking, that we can add value to all kinds of different things. So that's who I am. It's how I think. It's what supported me and encouraged me to go out and learn more about this particular subject matter. But then I continue to want to learn about all kinds of different things and how I can weave all those threads together to actually make change yeah and you mentioned how you can apply that in many different versions and that actually leads me to my next question you run two business in parallel to das studio which which outsource design capability from das at testing modular ideas in a number of typologies creating modular accommodation for example is one of them one of the business is mdlr and the other one is Eska. Can you talk about MDLR and its achievements to date, more specifically about the health facility in Marie with the Royal Flying Doctor Service? I think what's really important is that what I found through my learnings in my research overseas from onto construction is that it was an odd thing that all of the companies that I visited, some companies were being around for like 50 to 70 years. They were all family businesses. It was a very strange thing that in Germany or Italy or in Vietnam, wherever I went, they were family businesses. And what that sort of told me is that to do something new, sometimes it needs to be almost like a family-level commitment, if that yeah. makes sense, yeah. to continue when things don't make sense. You just keep going. You've got to have that passion about it. Totally, totally. So for us to be able to go out and say us because it was a group of people that have come together over this journey. It's not ab- in absolutely no way, shape or form is it has, has it just been me alone. But with that learning from that travel overseas, it was about how do we identify the barriers to why this isn't normal business as usual, assessing those barriers and then trying to find an application for it. You didn't have to solve all the problems of all of construction. That's going to take a long time, but how can we demonstrate how good a different way of 
building could be. So we did our research and we identified that ticking all the right boxes in terms of where the metrics made sense for something like prefabrication in construction all pointed towards tourism and in particular regional tourism. All the constraints of site in terms of distances to sites, um, the site upgrades in terms of power systems, wastewater systems, water systems, all those sorts of things. And then the per night return that you could get for that footprint of infrastructure all made sense to build a high quality five-star hotel room that was off-grid that you could drop into amazing locations where it wouldn't be particularly commercial to build an in-situ high-cost, high-investment project. And so that's kind of where we started. We said, well, if we can create these amazing experiences where lots of people can access them and experience them and we can show just how good modular construction is and it can be commercially viable and we can develop interesting procurement models, which is a very key part of all this, and funding models in terms of the fact that these buildings aren't actually buildings, they're classified as plant equipment. So they depreciate like a car. It's a very interesting thing because that's not the case with um, a house in the traditional sense. So all these different things coming together allowed us to pitch this idea of a five-star hotel room that could drop anywhere and we built up a business case for that. We found a pilot site for that. So now 2014, 2015, wasn't until 2017, 2018 that we delivered our first project. So it takes some time to get to that point. Yeah, because it's so new. There's a lot of investigation that needs to happen. Absolutely. And, I mean, also you have to fund it too, right? These buildings aren't caravans. They're not tiny homes. These are 55 to 66 square meter elements that are going to get dropped into the middle of nowhere pretty much. So through all that, what we're able to demonstrate is that one, we can deliver a high quality experience in nature, which was the sort of brief that we created ourselves, structure around a 48 hour stay, but one that for our first site allowed them to maintain operations of their vineyard. They already had accommodation, so they didn't want disruption to all that operation. And yeah, within you know, 24, 48 hours, we'd delivered a building, had it commissioned, two to three weeks later it was operating. And so it ticked all those boxes those buildings which cost us then, so this is now 2017, 18, so we delivered two and we delivered mm-hmm. them 12 or 18 months apart because we completely reworked the two buildings. So one building had a particular methodology of construction and look and feel, the other one was completely different because we wanted to prove a whole range of different things. But those two buildings, let's call it, I don't know, $225,000 each, all done for the services, the, the construction, everything else. Um, those Buildings are occupied 90% at 500 to $550 per night. So when you run the numbers and all that, it's pretty compelling. Yeah. And so from that place, we understood that we just didn't want to make buildings. We didn't want to just lease the buildings. We actually want to participate in creating the whole thing. So that's now what we've done with ESCA has evolved into a standalone brand that is a turnkey solution for tourism accommodation. And we've earmarked that we've got at least – 50 or so of those to be building across a multitude of sites in South Australia and we're gearing up for a capital raise. We've already done a few cap raises and then brought investment and expertise into the business, but that's a pretty exciting thing that we're getting going. But ESCA represented a chance to demonstrate how good modular construction could be. So instead of just saying modular construction is great, it's the future, we found a way to demonstrate it. Actually prove it. And put our money on the line and blood, sweat and tears and everything else as well. And so what we knew is that we had other applications for that approach. We just needed to show it, to be honest, in a sexy way. And these buildings are very sexy buildings. Yeah, they so they become do. they become very appealing and it attracts interest. So from that, regional health was an obvious one for us. And we've got a whole plan for how we can address some of the challenges we face in the health sector. And so regional health was an obvious one. And, yeah, that's how kind of MDLR came about, to take what we built with ESCA as a standalone thing and as a venture that can then go off and have its own life. MDLR was created to be that construction consultancy piece to support the uptake of modular construction prefab more and more and not be a builder but actually facilitate any contractor to come in and use the facility that we've got set up down in the southern suburbs here in Adelaide so that we can actually expand the capacity within the South Australian market and remove that barrier because a contractor is not really going to be so willing to go out and lease a construct like a big footprint to build these buildings off site. So we thought we'd remove that barrier and then invite 
the construction industry to come and play with us. And that opportunity came up after I wrote a paper um, called Agile Health Infrastructure, which had a couple of key pillars, and one of them was regional health. And we spoke to the government, and whilst they thought it was a great idea, it was just too outside the box for them to to take a chance on the pilot project. So the next best thing for us to do was to speak to someone that works with government but is independent and can make their own decisions, and that was the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And we we didn't go to them and say, this is our product, what do you think? We said, what's your biggest problem? Mm-hmm. And they said their biggest problem is Mari. And they explained why that was a problem. It was a 111-year-old building, asbestos riddled, well beyond its usable life. They can't do any more extension work to it. They have to maintain operation so they can service the all of Central Australia. And we helped them create a solution and a system for how they could deliver healthcare continuity, but also deliver a far more cost-effective outcome in terms of value for money building that wasn't lost to the, I guess, the, the penalty that attract, that's attracted with building in a remote area. Yeah. So we could embed that same value into the building infrastructure instead of it being lost to logistics and putting up trades in the middle of the country and operational inefficiencies and all that kind of stuff. So It's more value for money. Absolutely. Yeah. And the thing is we know that that solution is still expensive because it's a far more complex project to deliver, but it's far better than the alternative in a regional context, especially in a remote context like Mari. And we're going to start with solving those problems. And as we get to scale, that can transition across and become more mainstream and be applicable to other things, which is ultimately what's happened with the education program. Yeah, which we'll talk more later. (laughs) I would like to talk about other initiatives that you've created as well and that you've helped build, basically. You promote discussions about relevant matters for our society in general, not only for the architecture community, and they are Future Forum and the Festival of Architecture and Design. Do you think that expanding your view about architecture and how the world functions through your studies interstate and overseas has helped you shape these initiatives that don't necessarily have to do with modular construction? Yeah, I totally. Uh, and I think what was really interesting about going through that fellowship process is that I had some really great mentors, one in particular um, was Steve Grieve, who was the founding director of Grieve Gillette. And when I started working there, he he put a bit of a rocket up me, or actually, let me say that, he, he saw that there was a spark and he saw he, maybe he put some tinder on that spark <laughs> um, to make it turn into something like a rocket pretty much. Um, he, he told me about the importance of agency and the role that we can have as architects to shape the community. And so he got me into chapter council and that through that things like the um, Festival of Architecture and Design were created because I just wanted to get in there and actually do stuff instead of talk about stuff and as well as applying for the fellowship and, and the story of how Future Forum came about was directly related to a, you know this story that I've told a hundred times probably about being on a bus in China on a delegation with you know heads of government and heads of large corporations and, and entities in South Australia. I start up a conversation about driverless cars and very quickly became the centre of this whole conversation, a four-hour bus trip because every time someone would put up a barrier, I would chart a course for how that could turn into an opportunity for new business or new policy or whatever else that might be. And that became this moment where I realised I, I think differently about my th- most things. So Steve encouraged me to go out and be proactive in engaging with people beyond just the architecture community was very, very important don't want to be stuck in the echo chamber just talking to other architects because I think that's going to be very difficult for us to instigate a meaningful and, I guess, sustainable change. Yeah. So Future Forum and the Festival of Architecture and Design were efforts to create environments where architects could engage with the broader community about architecture, design-related things, but bigger things, again, systems, whole different wicked problems that we as a society have to address. And that's what Future Forum became about, talking about the construction industry, talking about mental health, talking about the future of learning, talking about the future of housing, um, talking about the circular economy, talking about our brand identity as a city, who and what we are here in Adelaide as well. So those events are crafted to bring architecture and design thinking into a broader platform with ministers and the premier and lord mayors along with experts from respective fields so that through those conversations where you've got a diverse group of experts can create these really amazing things which is you know hopefully 
um, what people think of when they think of the Future Forum series of events because we've seen other businesses create and other initiatives created on the back of these things like, you know, Jerry McLeod come out in 2018 and talk about Nightingale and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's now a Nightingale here in Adelaide. So, mm-hmm. um, and where we're looking to do our own interesting things in that space around build to rent to own. And I guess it's only through having this diversity of expertise come and talk about these things that we as architects can then help shape the conversation because we have that ability to see beyond just the obvious, which is right in front of us. So very much part of who I am and now something I get to share with the team at DAS as well. They get to participate in these things and be part of pushing this agenda of making things better. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned DAS because I was going to ask if if you think that your studies and modular construction helped you consolidate your business model. Well, DAS wouldn't exist without the fellowship, wouldn't exist mm-hmm. without my travels. It might exist, but it'd be a very different looking thing to be truthful. The opportunities that have manifested because of the modular construction part are just the sort of start of our journey. And I think we're still very much a traditional architecture practice, but I think the way in which we've gone about bringing our team of people together with the sort of real clear vision and mission about what we want to try and do supports the idea of different business models as well. So I think the team here get to see in real time that stuff becoming real and have been able to participate and work on these projects. And I think whether it's health, because we've, you know, we've, we as DAS have delivered these projects working together with all these different amazing organizations. And so the modular construction piece has been a bit of a foot in the door, so to yeah. speak, but we're broadening out that the application of that to then support other businesses, other ventures that want to do things differently. And so as a business, our business model is to be a little bit more entrepreneurial and create a safe place for being a bit more bold and adventurous, being a departure from, oh, we've designed that library before, so you know you can just get the same sort of thing. Well, actually, we haven't designed a library, but we think differently about things and we're good at what we do. So let's have a conversation about what you need and let's create a solution for you guys that's not just about now, but what does it look like in the future? And not so that's, only about the building that you're delivering, about everything that involves. Correct. And so, I mean, we call that phase zero on all our projects. We've actually created a whole phase which we all do anyway we've just called it something like mm-hmm. oh it's briefing it's consultation it's you know we call it phase zero it's all the thinking and all the learning and all the interrogation that needs to happen before you even get a pen out so we include that in our project and we probably take a financial hit because we over invest in the project but the outcomes end up being so much better and it's helping to you know it's our investment in our projects and ourselves to be better at what we do and in time, that will change, but in terms of it being commercial, hopefully. But but it actually gives us so much more joy in what we do, right, as a yeah. business. So it, it makes us feel like we can contribute in a more meaningful way and we actually create, again, space for our clients to feel comfortable to be a bit more bold about what their aspirations are. And because we we are that, that that's exactly who and what we are and how we came about, that's... Um, that makes it easier to convince them to take that chance as well. So we live and breathe it. I forgot what the question was at the beginning, but it's about business models, right? Yeah, business models. I think the long and short of it, we kind of make it up as we go. But I know we don't. We, we think about things deeply and I'm very lucky that um, with Sarah as my, as my wife and business partner in this, it means that we can make quick decisions and we have mm-hmm. a level of trust and intuition about what is the right move. But Sarah always asks of me for my own benefit as much as for hers to go away and almost do a pitch deck to her for every time we want to do something different or something new, it's important because she knows that if I go away and do that, the idea has far more rigor to it. And that's the same yeah. process we apply to everything, whether it's our design rules and our projects, whether it's about considering operational models and actually embedding that in the briefing for a client, full life cycle costs, all that kind of stuff. It's that same thinking that permeates through everything we do. So to answer your question, does the modular construction piece influence our business models? It contributes to our business. It's the way of thinking that contribu- contributes to our business, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And modular construction was responsible for exponential? I don't know if it was an exponential, exponential but it was an explosion <laughs> yeah. of people. Yes, and I was part of that growth. I don't know if the audience know, but I work with Gino at our studio. I'm a graduate here. And 
Can you tell the audience how that came about, mm. how this opportunity with Modular mm. happened that made us grow that much? Yeah, well, that's that's a long that's a long story, so I'll try and do it quick. But the short of it is, I guess, it was very much the final end game, I suppose, of going away on that fellowship. On the back of that, and through delivering the pilot project, the first pilot project for Esker, uh, I was invited to come and speak at some conferences in Melbourne and Sydney, and share my story and my observations around prefab and modular, and you know, putting an architect's um, spin on it which is always interesting in a room full of builders. But at that event, uh, I met someone who was doing a lot of interesting work in Victoria at the time called BHA Project Management and now known as Sensum. And so Nick was the, the person who caught my attention because he spoke very differently about what he was doing as a facilitator for modular construction. I found that a lot of the time people were talking about, here is my product, here is my solution, it's the best. Yeah, but it's a one. It's a, it's a square peg. What happens if it's a round hole? It doesn't fit, mm-hmm. right? So again, it's systems thinking that's more important to me. And so what Nick had been able to do is identify a problem within the Department for Education, or yeah, the VSBA as it is in Victoria, regarding remediation of asbestos line buildings. And from that, you know, foot in the door, he turned that into a significant program of works replacing old dilapidated school infrastructure using a modular construction methodology. So he talked a lot about that and and he was really interested by what we were doing with Esker and saw that as a really interesting thing. And we just, we just struck up a friendship talking about those things and stayed in touch. And I could see that similar, similar opportunities would present themselves within the education department here in South Australia. So I facilitated some chances for Nick to come and meet with, you know, our Department for Education and Catholic Education and others to introduce the idea of what was going on. And, and Nick was very good at, you know, fueling that flame um, and keeping them across what was going on. And so that that's happening in the background. I've left where I was to go and work with Sarah in the front room of our house in Parkside. So this is now – so the talks around the country were in 2018 – and now 2019, I've joined Sarah um, at our home. And the plan for us was just to do residential work. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's a whole other podcast episode we can do about mental health at some stage, so I'm happy to oh, talk yeah. about that in terms of how I ended up doing my own thing with Sarah. But the idea was just the two of us going to do residential work and that was going to be great. But um, people started reaching out when they found out that I'd gone out on my own and they said, oh, you know, I like working with you. What do you think about this? So we added a team member and then we won a project for uni. So we added a team member and we got to about September of 2019 and it was the, I think, four and a half of us at the time and we'd moved out of the front room because that was no longer appropriate and Nick had sought some support for putting together a business case to deliver a pilot project for the Department for Education and we provided that support and we you know, talked about what the, the landscape looked like here from a consultant's perspective, from a contractor perspective, um, approvals, pathways, procurement, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, come September, an opportunity that was facilitated through the Year 7 transition to high school, which was not a thing yet in South Australia, and one particular school that was a pilot within those first four that made the transition, um, they, they had an immediate issue they hadn't been able to solve and they needed to find a home for 300 new students in four months' time. So that was enough of a moment for this novel pilot project to get some legs. And so that was what it was going to be, our first big project for government, a $5 million project um, at Mitcham Girls High School. I don't think I knew that modular school program started to happen before the Year 7 transition became a thing. That's a big endeavour to transition Year 7 to high school. And, you know, rightly, the Department of Education did a pilot. They picked four schools of the hundreds of schools to make that transition first so they could go through that process before they rolled it out en masse. And what became apparent is that some school environments, like physical school environments, will struggle to very quickly deliver the new infrastructure to receive those students. And so this particular project at Mitcham was really constrained in terms of footprint and they couldn't really crack that nut about how to build and move the kids around and do all that decanting stuff. Mm -hmm. So modular was a really good fit and it was pretty much 
you know, the exact template of what Sensum were able to do in Victoria. So I gave them a level of comfort and they could go over to Victoria and see what the built outcome looked like. So, and Nick, having known my experience and working on these things and being part of that journey with him for two years of, you know, advocating for this different approach, we got that opportunity. But what happened next was not the plan. So what happened next is that there were multiple rounds of these capital works as part of this transition. And within the space of three weeks, that one project turned into 12. Mm-hmm. So 5 million, 50 million. We could have managed that one project of 5 million just as the four and a half of us, but yeah. the 50 million is something altogether different. And we didn't want to do it. That was the first position. It was just, I mean, the logistical things that go with something like that at the speed that we had to do it was going to be a very, very challenging thing. In terms of the number of staff we had to bring on, we effectively would have to cash flow all the consultants on the team. It was a big thing. And so, yeah, initially we weren't completely sold on it, but ultimately we were able to have some interesting discussions with our our client and Mm -hmm. they made it quite clear that as a pilot project and us with our specialist expertise that they wanted to bring it into one sort of neat team and we kind of took on the role of design director, so to speak, to standardise the approach across a lot of these different projects. We wanted to maybe do four or five and we recommended other architecture practices that could participate in this as well and maybe we had a role that supported them as part of this. Yeah. But they wanted to streamline the whole thing and so ultimately, and it upset a lot of people, truthfully, and we were appointed directly for these 12 schools. As a result, we needed to grow. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of what happened. So the first person we employed after that was another architect, another designer, was actually a practice manager, which is a big thing for us with only four and a half people is to say, okay, we need someone to manage the place because Sarah and I and the rest of the team are going to be very busy delivering these projects. So um, Sarah Thompson, our unicorn, as we call her, she came on board to help straighten us out. And then, yeah, progressively we started recruiting people. And I guess that's where we were first introduced to you or vice versa. And I think you're employee maybe nine or ten in yes. the mix about yes. that. So you had the what so experience, which is <laughs> not pleasant. Um, it was at the start of 2020 when we grew so fast that our office fit out wasn't finished and half the team had to go to a share workspace or the other half stayed in our old office and it wasn't particularly fun. But, um, yeah, we ultimately moved into our new space with 12 or 13 of us, I think. So, yeah, six months after that first sort of announcement of us winning that work. We'd grown from four to 13. We moved into our new office uh, in the city, which is great. It's an amazing space. We're in it right now. But, of course, what happened in March 2020? COVID. Yeah. (laughs) So everyone went home for a while. And, of course, we've been impacted nowhere near as badly as, you know, our friends in Victoria and and also the East Coast. We're very, very lucky. But but that was a challenge, bringing a whole group of people together to work on this intensive program with new systems, new standards, everything, and working remotely. And, and we you, got through it, right? And new practice. We were creating also standards within the practice as, we as how we roll with things and the program and everything. So it was interesting. Mm. It was a very good learning experience. Yeah, we call it our resistance training. If we can get through that, we can get through anything. Yeah, exactly. That was a very a very good explanation of how everything everything started with us and how we grew. And I would actually like to refer to a paragraph that you have in your website that you created when you were applying for the um, for the fellowship. Okay. And I'll just read it out to you right now. This is interesting. Which means how long ago did I write this? Seven years ago. Right. Okay. To spend time interstate and overseas, gaining expertise and knowledge in an emerging specialized field would fast-track my career development and provide me with a key point of difference within the profession, establishing me as a valuable set to any organization I work with. How does it feel listening to this that you wrote seven years ago and actually seeing that it all kind of came true, it, it all happened? How does it feel? Do you remember writing this? I don't remember writing that. It's funny hearing that. It sounds like me. <laughs> But I was, I don't know, I was pretty dumb and naive when I was <laughs> seven <laughs> years ago. I just turned 30. Oh, oh, look, I think what that says is I put a great deal of value in learning. And I guess for me, finding ways in which I could become an asset, I think mm-hmm. is important and how I can add value. 
I guess, yeah, I never wanted to be run of the mill. I wanted to have an impact. And I, I think I understood from a long way out. I've understood for a long time that if you want to contribute, you do have to step up and you do have to go a little bit of above and beyond. And it's, it's hurt me at times as well. Like just as many knockbacks, like every time I've tried to get somewhere, it's always been someone or something or that's, you know, gotten away of that, but I've persisted. I think that paragraph says a lot about who I am, but I think there's a selflessness in that too, about the fact that it's not about, not, not about me saying I want to be the best. It's about me being able to be an asset to, mm-hmm. to anyone. And so I think that talks a lot about my, you know, who I am as a person that I've always given away power and knowledge because for me, I think it's better if an idea or endeavor is a common agenda shared by many people because it's got more chance of succeeding if that's the case so maybe to my detriment sometimes but I give away a lot of stuff um, I've always been pretty selfless so and I think what's transpired since that initial endeavor of that fellowship and everything else that's happened that yes we've had some benefits from that too but we've actually grown capacity in the industry and thousands of students now use these these school buildings that wouldn't have been delivered in time because of traditional procurement all that kind of stuff so yeah, anyway, I feel a little bit funny hearing you say that, but I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think if anything else, it's, I'm consistent. I don't know what else <laughs> <Yeah>. to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I found it really interesting when I read that because I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And you had many of songs in your career mm-hmm. to date. Was there one that you looked at it and said, oh, my God, I, I made it that was really impactful for you? Probably don't do it enough to be truthful to just take moments to reflect on achievements because when you're in it, you're in this bubble and it's just you don't have the helicopter view of everything that's been mm-hmm. achieved, right? So I think that's a really important thing. So, you know, any advice for young emerging architects out there is just actually take time to be aware of how far you come because your, your growth in those early years is significant. Like it really, really is so you have to take a moment, even though when you think you're like, oh, I'm an idiot, I've got no idea what I'm doing here, I don't understand, just stick it out. Like it'll pay itself off. Those first five years are pretty amazing. But I think if, if I could pinpoint some moments, I, I wouldn't call them like career milestones, i just call them moments, right? So mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I, it took me a while to understand that I could be a good architect and what might be possible. And I my first couple of jobs weren't, the best version of what architecture practice is. They, they were fine. They just weren't, you know, the sort of version that I think we all want to aspire to. I learned a lot, but not the version, like I said, that I think is the right version of architecture. And so I think it was my first day working for Dimity Anderson Architects, um, who just kind of plucked me from obscurity. We went out on site and saw what would ultimately become a, a few award-winning projects, an AI award-winning project under construction. And that became this real sort of step jump moment for me about what architecture could do. So that was back in 20, geez, that was 2010. It's a long time ago now, so 12 years ago, far out, 12 years ago. Um, so that was a really important moment. I think being part of some amazing projects at Grief Galette, I think one in particular, whilst I wasn't involved in the final version of what it became, there's a great organisation here in South Australia called the Jam Factory mm-hmm. and Steve was very much part, Steve Grieve was part of that back in the 1980s and finding a new home in the city and I had an opportunity to be introduced to that organisation. So, yeah, my third day at Grieve Galette, so that was actually my birthday, 12th of September 2012. I had lunch with Steve and Brian Parks and Nikki Harmdorf and they're two people that are still good friends and mentors to this day. I'm on the Adelaide Economic Development Agency with Brian Parks and Nikki is an advisor to us um, in terms of our advisory board that we have here as a practice. So meeting them at a restaurant that doesn't exist anymore, that's now Fugazi, mm-hmm. um, which is a great restaurant designed by our friend Studio Graham. But we had lunch there to talk about the jam factory at Sepultsfield and how we would go about creating that as a new model. And, you know, that was an amazing experience to be introduced to that. So that's a pretty important moment for me in my career. I think... I mean, winning the Jack Hobbs McConnell Fellowship, that was an amazing moment um, because I had a few cracks at trying to get an opportunity to do something. So that was a pretty pretty special moment for me. My career kind of was the right encouragement at the right time to keep pursuing learning and wanting to improve. The Festival of Architecture and Design was a great moment. 
you know, they came onto Chatley Council, took a couple of months to get my bearings on what the institute is like and um, then went full Dino and said we should do more <laughs> and create a whole festival with 40 events and all this kind of stuff. So apologies to all the institute staff for having to <laughs> endure me. It was pretty amazing and I think a lot of people look back on it pretty fondly as a little moment where the profession was elevated in the state, which is great. And I think, you know, there's some moments that weren't always great either, but they were pretty seminal moments. So like, you know, the moment which very much was the sort of skewing of my story, you know, the trajectory of my life and my career yeah, in Sydney in 2017 when I had my full-blown mental, physical breakdown, mm-hmm. um, which is not a fun experience. So that was a moment. It wasn't a great moment, but it was a seminal moment. Important for the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, the delivery of our first Escapod project was pretty special. That was a That was a good day. You know, manifestation of a lot of hard work, a lot of our actual money. We funded the first building completely ourselves. So as an architect putting up, you know, whatever it was, 80, 80 grand to build that building as our contribution, not not the less also our time and everything else as well. So that was a pretty, pretty cool thing. But I think, you know, there's a lot to be really, you know, grateful for in more recent history, um, what we've been able to do as a team and also what I've been able to do with Sarah in particular, I think is a pretty special thing that a lot of those moments were kind of me to be mm-hmm. truthful, but DAS is something that I share with Sarah. It's a very, very, very special thing. You know, when we found out about the first school that we won, there's a photo on our Instagram of the team sitting underneath some trees or some bushes, all feeling pretty happy about ourselves and a lot's changed since then. That's for sure. <laughs> but when we finally had a moment to move into our new space and Sarah and I took a breath and actually just looked around and realised that only 12 months before that, so this is, yeah, March 2020, March 2019, it was just the two of us in the front room of our house. We now had a space ready for up to 20 people or more. I don't know. How many seats have we got? Maybe that um, many. Maybe more. Yeah, a little we, bit more. We yeah. can go double-decker maybe on, <laughs> yeah. and we can fit some more people, but... Yeah, just to have a moment and reflect on that was pretty was a pretty special thing. Getting to do it with my you know, my my partner in life was it's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah, it's her birthday today, so I should be with her celebrating her <laughs> birthday. But I'm here with you on this podcast. So I appreciate it. Happy <laughs> birthday, okay. Sarah. That's right. But there, there's that and then of course the being acknowledged as a um, you know, as an emerging architect within South Australia. But then also, yeah, I was going but then to also say- nationally is I mean that's I don't get emotional too often, but that was quite emotional night. You were you were with me. Mm-hmm. We we enjoyed and partied a little bit. Yeah, it was just a nice moment to actually know that the hard work had been recognised, and it scarily kind of gave me permission to keep going and push harder and yeah, dial yeah. it up to eleven kind of thing, which is kind of what we're doing now. To be truthful, it it endorsed everything that we've been doing, and yeah, I remember that day. I don't think I've ever seen you that nervous mm. and anxious about something. Mm. It was pretty. It was a pretty good day. And and now, if you were to say something and give a piece of advice to members of the Imagine demographics who aspire to do research abroad in order to improve the quality of our profession here mm. in Australia, mm-hmm. what could you say to them? I'll, I would say diversity is key in all things. Diversity is important. Having a breadth of different views and vantage points on things is really important. There's so much that can be learned from other architects, but there's so much that can be learned from other sectors, other industries, and just generally people from all different walks of life. So if you were to do it, I think it's about not being so intensive just on architecture. You just have to stop and look around at all the elements that go into making the systems of, like I said before, how we live, how we learn, Mm -hmm. how we work. So that's the unique thing about overseas travel is that, you know, architects, we're all kind of the same in a roundabout way. We all have the same sort of skill set, but how we then apply that in different environments becomes the interesting thing. So take time to understand the environment because it's those differences that become the interesting thing, I think. And there's opportunities in the differences rather than the similarities, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great piece of advice. And I think we covered basically everything. It was really, really good to have you here in the uh, Hearing Architecture podcast. 
Thank you for being with us. And it was great to have the opportunity to interview my director. So thank you for that. No worries. Thank you so much. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our guest in this episode, Dino Vrinios. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We can't wait to see what initiatives you create next. Dino also produces a podcast called 20 Minute City, where he interviews some of South Australia's most successful entrepreneurs about the work they're doing and why they've chosen South Australia for their HQ. If you'd like to hear more, you can visit futureforum.com.au or your favourite podcast app. Our sponsor Brickworks also produced podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. If you'd like to hear from some amazing architects, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Renata Gabara, Chris Morley, Hannah Broughton and Lauren James. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.